Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's time for good conversation here on 94 WIP. Before we begin with our conversation, we bid a fond farewell to Barbara Bush, former First Lady of the United States, 92 years old when she passed on. Godspeed, Barbara. You will be missed. And when we come back in just a bit, Stephen David Elliott. Stephen is Chief Visionary Officer for Rockstar Connect. He's also National Director of Business Development for Fathom Reality and just a serial entrepreneur. He's into so many different things. And we're going to talk about why corporations, businesses should give back to the community in which they find themselves. All this and more coming up here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More after these messages, the WIP Times 601. And we're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. It's 94 WIP. My guest this morning, Stephen David Elliott. Stephen is Chief Visionary Officer of Rockstar Connect and a whole lot more. Good morning, David. Stephen David. Hey, good morning. Always great to speak with you. Good. All right. First of all, what is Rockstar Connect? Uh, Rockstar Connect is uh, the largest uh, evening uh, business networking event company in the world. Uh, We currently have uh, over 120 uh, business networking events around the country. We've had over 100,000 attendees uh, since uh, March of last year going to our events, and we uh, help uh, people in their local community to become leaders of large networking groups so they can accomplish uh, local celebrity uh, where they can do benevolent and altruistic things for their individual uh, business communities. And why That's is that a quick Im- elevator pitch? Okay. And why is that important to you and to the company? Well, for me, the most the most important thing, and this has been you know the guiding principle of my entire life, and now the principle uh, of our company, is to establish a movement where uh, people help one another uh, by giving. Uh, when you give to other people, and you you you're unselfish, and you support other people in the community, all of our boats rise together. And we all experience great success. Uh, The people that are in our groups, we don't wait for the government to intercede and do things for us or other, you know, authority figures. We work together in a team environment uh, to help uh, other people, whether they already own a business or whether they would like to own a business. Rockstar Connect is their vehicle to do good things uh, for other people. How do you do that? Maybe an example would help. Uh, well, uh, I when someone comes into one of our events, our hosts are, are taught and they're imbued with the spirit of giving. Rather than saying to someone, you know, what are you, what do you do? Which, you know, sort of a boring response would be, I'm an attorney, I'm a real estate agent. But that's what you do. That's not who you are. So our hosts will say to someone coming into an event, uh, what are you trying to achieve and how can I help you achieve that goal? It's a very different way of interacting with people. You interact with people as friends first, as someone you want to get to know. And once you know that person, you like that person, 
and you trust that person, then you can refer business to one another. All right. I would imagine some people come in and want to do good for their community, and some people come in and want to achieve the big house and the Mercedes in the driveway. Well, we, we actually do quite a bit in our content and our messaging uh, through social media and other marketing uh, specifically to attract people that do believe in entrepreneurship and success, but also believe in helping other people and being altruistic. And that type of messaging is extremely successful in separating those that are predatory and just want to make money from people that actually want to assist and help other people improve their lives. And that's something that I'm very proud of. And you have every right to be proud of it, certainly. Um, When you talk about giving, you're talking about giving your time, giving your money, giving goods and services, all of the above, something else entirely? Uh, Well, I I talk, it's about all those things, but uh, we as a company are trying to learn uh, and trying to incorporate into our business uh, the support of local charities. Uh, to that end, uh, in our in our Charleston uh, in our Charleston chapter, in uh, conjunction uh, with the real estate brokerage uh, Fathom Realty, which is a, a fantastic organization altogether that I'm involved with, uh, we are supporting a local charity called Going Places. Uh, the CEO of the company is uh, Kate Blomquist. Fathom Realty has actually purchased a, a program for going places, so they're able to get out their message. And what do they do? They buy bicycles for children in elementary schools. They go and they buy bicycles for the entire school, so those children will learn about exercise and play and uh, freedom. And uh, Fathom inspired us. Uh, they. Uh, purchased this program uh, for this charity. It was the first charity group uh, in our entire company, a charity event. They do it every single month, and we have started participating by paying for the food for the event, uh, helping them get their message out, uh, matching charitable contributions that are made at the event. And it's, it, it's not difficult it feels really right and it feels good. And there's also payback to the company. We get things out of it as well. What does the company get out of it? Well, first of all, you know, obviously whatever community that we're in, we want all boats to rise together. I mentioned that before from uh, not just business people, but also you know, people that have jobs and, and children that are in school. But beyond that, when we're doing our social media messaging and people in that local community uh, see that we're supporting a charity, they want to participate more in our endeavors. They want to attend our events. And, and since our clients are, are our hosts of these events, they find more attendees coming to their event. And that's what we, you know, as a company, one of the things we're delivering for them. So because local people see us supporting that local charity, it allows our national company to participate in that local community, which brings more attendees, which benefits our hosts, 
which ultimately gets us more hosts and makes more money for the company. So there's a lot of giving going on there, but I would have to say that it feels like the receiving is amplified and we get even more than the charity. Now you talk about though in your publicity literature four ways to support that supporting a charity is good for business. Could you talk more about that? Well, charities, one of the ways it's really good is, uh, first of all, we're very blessed. Our company's been extremely successful. We've had uh, tremendous uh, growth uh, financially and materially. But we're a company that strongly believes that spiritual abundance is important uh, to our company and also to our clients. Our clients are doing something uh, that positions them as, you know, a a leader in their community that gives back to their community. And we are the company that's assisting them to do that because, frankly, our clients are all very successful. Uh, They're limited in time, but they know they got where they were by giving, and they want to continue to give. Adding on the actual charitable giving and giving money uh, to charities, not only does it feel good and it does good things for the people in the local community and the charity, there's also you know, uh, benefits, uh, tax benefits as well. So when you are selecting uh, a charity that you're going to be giving to or your organization is giving to, you can't just do it blindly. You have to research that charity, uh, make sure that they're truly doing what they're saying they're doing, they're, they're doing it in an efficient manner, and they're not wasting you know, not only the company's money, but that money that we have as a company was contributed to us by our clients. We don't want to waste our clients' money either. Does that make sense, Peter? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're doing good for the community. You're doing good um, for the company. You're doing good for the employees. I would imagine it helps them feel good. I mean, it's like those books, uh, Chicken Soup is Good for the Soul. Uh, giving is uh, it's a privilege to be able to do things, either by giving to a charity or having an ethical business that does what it promises to do that has an impact on the community, like Rockstar Connect does. Absolutely. Now, if you're not busy enough with Rockstar Connect, you've got um, Fathom Reality in your life as well. Don't you have enough to do? Uh, I, I believe in uh, keeping busy, not being idle. Uh, keeping my uh, mind active. Uh, I'm going to be 50 this year, and I'm very excited about uh, that landmark. But uh, I feel like I've always, you know, although not chronologically, I think mentally I've always been 50 and trying to work to this part of my life where I could give back and really see my endeavors help other people. And uh, we're just really excited. The company is blown up. I was speaking to a new client this week. He's had two events with us. He's real excited to be interacting with the community. But in his first event, he made an appointment that led to a $52,000 referral. And in his uh, second event, he made a connection that led to a $65,000 commission. Go client. And I said, that's a, you know, that's a great, uh, great return on investment for him. And he helped uh, both of those clients achieve things as well. So it's, it's like giving out into the community. 
being busy is a good thing as long as uh, you feel you're achieving your goals and uh, helping other people to do so. And it also occurs to me it's important what you're doing because government finds it can't do what it used to do, that the money just doesn't go as far enough. Washington state capitals, city halls are all cutting back on services to the nonprofit world. Somebody's got to pick up the slack. They, they absolutely do. And, you know, I'm not a government, I'm not a government uh, smasher, but uh, they're, they're very inefficient at doing what, what uh, you, you as a radio host and my company as a business can do as far as uh, creating opportunity and jobs uh, for people. Uh, we're very proud of, we have uh, one client, and he wrote about it in his event. He's a very successful local business person. Uh, his company impacts directly uh, over 50 employees. He said what makes him so happy about his event are the people that come to his event that are on unemployment for the first time in their life. They've had the same job for 15, 20 years, and their, you know, their, their company goes bankrupt, they lose their retirement, they, they don't have a leg to stand on, and they meet someone at his networking event, and they're able to get interviews and then a job. He's not talking about the great commission he makes or the money he's making uh, from his event, which is substantial. His win is the people that are being brought up and we have people in the, the networking event, they do their own little charities. There are things that are that are important to them, the local charities that are important to them, and they're able to support those charities in these groups. Now, that may be an organized charity, like uh, Jeff Mistretta in Long Island, one of our hosts, he supports Candles for Hope, which is similar to Make-A-Wish, to uh, clients like... Uh, Marco Rossi uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, who collects coats at his event for people that uh, you know are homeless or don't have the money to buy a warm coat. That's what you can do when you work together in groups uh, to lift everyone up, Peter. The power of the individual is part of what it seems to be Rockstar Connect is all about. It's an individual working together as a team with other people in their community. Uh, they are they are the leader of the community, and we, and we give them the skills so that they can they can project themselves in the community as that leader, so that they have the ability to help the other people in the group. And then the people in the group they'll stand up as well and take their leadership roles in the community. Now, Steve and David Elliott from Rockstar Connect. How how do, how do we reach you guys if we want more information? Maybe you want to start a networking group, anything like that. Yeah, the two best ways, I, I think it's always good to have knowledge. Knowledge is, is power. So go to our, our website. It's extremely transparent. It tells you exactly what we do, what we charge to do it, and, and our, what our goals are for you and our program. That's rockstarconnect.com. And on our Facebook page, uh, which is also Rockstar Connect, Rockstar is one word, You'll see thousands of pictures and the content that we utilize uh, to make people uh, know how to help one another and work together in a network. How about if we want to get invited to a Rockstar Connect event or find oh, one in our community? 
Sure. If you go to our uh, website, uh, rockstarconnect.com, and uh, look under events, we have, uh, in this coming month, we'll have 120 events. And the following month, uh, we should have 200 events. Our goal is to have, uh, by the end of the year, uh, 1,000 uh, events uh, per month. Uh, and uh, our eventual goal is 24,000 events per year. All networking events, building community. You're an amazing man, Stephen Elliott, because um, what you're doing improves the world, improves individuals, improves the human condition. Yes, thank you so much for that. That makes me feel very proud, and I hope my mother can listen to that later. I hope so. And I want to say thank you to Stephen David Elliott, Chief Visionary Officer of Rockstar Connect, for joining us this morning, talking about how they helped individuals and corporations give back to the communities in which they live as good corporate citizens. Thank you, Steve. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. My pleasure. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPO Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. More good conversation in just a bit. The WIP time, 620. And we're back. It's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, military expert and author, and a whole lot more, Dr. Harlan Ullman. Good morning, Dr. Ullman. Good morning, Peter. Doctor, it seems like we've had you on before, and we've talked about military exercises this government of ours has participated in, and why it seems anyway that any war we start as a country seems to go poorly. Never before have we felt like we're dancing on the brink of a whole lot of trouble between North Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, countries in Africa, the possibility that the president feels he can send in troops anywhere, anytime he wants, not without necessarily congressional approval. We got problems, don't we? <laughs> well, I think you've uh, made this a very unhappy Saturday, Sunday morning to start with, but you're right. And as you know, Peter, my latest book just out called Anatomy of Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts, makes this case. And you go back to take a look at our history since World War II, and our record has not been good. Korea was a draw at best. We had Vietnam and Iraq, too, which were disasters. And it seems whenever we use military force, Libya in 2011 uh, provoked a civil war. And so we've got to be very, very careful. I think, however, there are a couple of situations today that are somewhat different. Uh, I think in the case of North Korea, what we don't understand is that now that Kim Jong-un has a nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons and the means to uh, use them through missiles and rockets, uh, he feels he's reached an equivalence with the United States, and therefore he's prepared to negotiate. And while some people will say it was the fire and fury of Donald Trump's rhetoric that brought North Korea to the table, I, don't, I dismiss that. I think Kim believes that this is an opportunity to negotiate because he is seeing himself, if not an equal, certainly on almost equal footing. And that's changed in Korea since the end of the Korean War. So I would be, if not optimistic, I don't think that the chance of war in Korea is, is particularly great. Uh, the situation in Syria is also fraught because we are in a very, very weak position, obviously Iran and, and Russia have far greater influence on the Assad regime, and there's very, very little we can do. The problem is that a negotiation is vital simply because we have to stop the murder and the killing. Uh, 
And it seems to me that despite the president saying that uh, that um, mission achieved in Syria with a strike of 105 cruise missiles uh, last week, um, we should have used those strikes along with uh, more innovative diplomacy to advance the path towards negotiation. And one of the things we should have done was to declare the Assad regime war criminals. Uh, this would have given us far greater legitimacy in the international community, and I think it would have been something that might have been much more useful in seeking uh, negotiations. But having said that, uh, I, I think I would diagnose the situation today as a bad case of the flu and not cancer where you have a life-threatening disease. Uh, the situation is unpleasant, certainly for many, many people in the region, but at this stage I don't think that this is August 1914 and the march to war inevitable leading to World War One. What about Russia, though? It seems to me um, Russia you know, presents a great threat to world peace. No, I don't think Russia presents a great threat to world peace. I think Russia uh, presents a danger to us in the West for a number of reasons, and I'm afraid it's not all Russia's fault. If you go back since the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, uh, the West and the United States have done... Uh, huge numbers of things that were seen to Russia to be threatening. Now, I'm not taking Russia's side, but I think if you were living in Moscow and you saw the expansion of NATO that became, uh, that was surrounding your country, uh, you saw the wars in Afghanistan, and having spent eight years in Afghanistan losing, Russia understood the pitfalls. Uh, President Putin warned President Bush 43 not to go into Iraq. And you saw wherever America and its allies put its foot, it made the situation worse. It preempted hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of refugees. I referenced Libya in 2011. And so I think Putin has come to the realization that not only is America not trustworthy, but America is dangerous. And that's why Russia is doing any number of things to seed chaos, to promote disinformation, to try to break the cohesion of the West, because it's afraid that the United States is liable to take actions that could be extremely dangerous towards Russia. Now, we have to understand that if we're going to come up with sensible ways to dealing with it. And one of the tools that Russia has used is called active measures, which is a combination of propaganda, misinformation, intimidation, espionage, and the like. And this goes back to the earliest days of Lenin after the Soviet Union was formed in 1917. And quite frankly, we have not been effective in dealing with this. And you saw Russian interference in our election. You now have the Mueller investigation over that and any links that the administration may have or the president may have with Russia. And here the issue is not collusion. The issue is whether there's obstruction of justice and whether uh, there really was some sort of an agreement between the Trump team and the Russians. And if that's the case then you have very, very serious crimes. But the point is that Russia was doing this because they want to destroy the influence of the United States. They want to destroy the cohesion of NATO because they see all as threats, and they are very, very afraid that what the United States and the West are doing is very, very dangerous to its interest. And so that's how they've reacted. And quite frankly, we have not fully understood that. And so therefore, our countermeasures so far, in my mind, have been relatively ineffective. What should we be doing instead? 
Well, first of all, we should be talking to the Russians. Congress has made it impossible or against the law for the military to talk. We have two major arms control agreements, the new START agreement that limits strategic weapons and the intermediate nuclear force agreement that goes back 30 years, uh, which are about to become abrogated either in principle or at actuality, and that would lead to an arms race, which we don't need. We ought to be dealing with active measures. We ought to be dealing with Russian propaganda, Russian cyber, and we ought to be thinking about a new strategy in NATO that's able to contain the Russians. What happened after the Russians went into Ukraine in 2014 and seized Crimea, NATO responded the old-fashioned way. Increased defense spending, increased troops. We're going to send more American forces to be stationed in the Baltics. Uh, and a brigade combat team to be stationed in Poland. Well, those steps were probably important to reassure our NATO allies, but quite frankly, they made no sense to Moscow. They haven't deterred Moscow whatsoever. In fact, Moscow probably sees them as puny. And so what we should be doing is developing a porcupine defense that depends on things such as drones and very, very large numbers, very large numbers of surface-to-air missiles, large numbers of anti-tank weapons, and an ability to counter Russian propaganda and intimidation so that if Russia is looking to seize territory in the West, and they're not, but if they believe that they will be bloodied like grabbing a porcupine and having a handful of quills, that will deter them. But more importantly, it also will provide the basis for dealing with these active measures of political intimidation, interference, and the like. We simply haven't done that, and we could be taking more actions to the Russians demonstrating that we are really quite serious. For example, the Russians are very, very concerned that Tomahawk, these are our cruise missiles that can be fired from ships, submarines, so forth, uh, are first strike weapons because they are hard to detect and because they're very accurate. Well, we could be making more threats along the lines that we have all these Tomahawks, but it would be more useful to talk with the Russians to see if we can have some kind of means to further arms control, such as through a reinforcement of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, rather than seeing it simply atrophy. Those are the kind of steps we should be taking, and we're not. You mentioned about Russia's attempts to fragment NATO, and it seems like they've been at least partially successful in terms of our response to the Syrian chemical attack. France and um, England jumped in, but Germany said, "Uh uh-uh. No, I don't, I don't agree with that assessment, Peter, because the Germans really don't have the capability to do things. NATO was coherent in saying, yes, we support that every NATO country, I think except Hungary, uh, agreed that this was a, a violation of, of, of international law and the American and British and French response was well intended. Uh, so I don't think that's really quite the issue. One of the problems we have, however, in Europe, you see the rise of the right. You see Viktor Orban in Hungary. Poland's got all sorts of issues. Austria, who's not part of NATO, has a very right-wing chancellor. And I think that the reason that this is happening is because, not because of populism, or those people are anti-immigrants. And as you know, there's been a huge flow of people coming from the Middle East because of the wars there. This is because of failed and failing government. And unless or until democracies really can provide what the governed need, and this applies in the United States, uh, Russia is going to have continued opportunity to exploit these particular weaknesses through its propaganda and intimidation. And so good governance is a way to make the alliance better, but that's going to have to be done on a country-by-country basis, and every country has its own problems. Britain has Brexit. Uh, France has a huge percentage of the population that are employed by the government, so reform is going to be very difficult to make. 
Germany has a coalition government and the Chancellor, Mrs. Merkel, is weakened now because of that coalition. So these are the really most important issues. And, of course, in the United States, uh, we have a lot of problems right here in River City with our debts and deficits, which are just getting bigger and bigger, uh, declining middle class and so forth, and a government in Washington that is broken, which leads to gridlock and, and inability, really, to perform things that need to be done. And we have a caller this morning here on Conversation. We have a gentleman from Delaware, Barry. Barry wants to talk to Dr. Harlan Ullman. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm fine. Good. I, I actually um, um, I'm actually agreed, agreed with um, the doctor right there. I think this, our con- this country problem is, it's because every time something happens either in the Middle East or another country, we want to show like we don't want to can throw bombs, kill people, and then pack our, pack our bundles and leave and go home. If you look back at the, the, the Gulf War, and he is so right, the doctor is so right, because they don't have no more trust for us. They said, you know what, the Americans can come and then they can, they can tell you, say, you know what, they're going to help you defeat Shoti Shoti Putin, and then once they're not interested on what they want from you, they turn their back and it never comes back. That's why you see Iraq don't trust the United States, and Iran says, you see, I told you. The United States came in and told Saddam Hussein to bomb us, and guess what happened? They came back later and killed Saddam Hussein because they have no interest or perhaps Saddam Hussein doesn't want to give them what they want. So that's why you see, it's not Iran don't want to make United States. Iran can, will never, ever, ever fight United States. Their best interest is to make peace with United States. But this, the trust issue that the doctor just highlighted, is the major problem why nobody in the world will back us or help us to fight. And any time they have a problem overseas, be the first one to go, you know what? going to throw bomb on you and all that stuff. Well, bomb does not win nowadays. Uh, let me, re- know, let me respond thing. to that, Peter. <clears throat> Are we there? Yeah, we're here. Yes, sir. Um, Jack Kennedy famously said the only thing worse than being an enemy of the United States was being an ally. <laughs> and he said it partly in jest, but unfortunately it's true. What's also interesting, if you go back and analyze, start with Vietnam, and even the, the second Iraq war, we made the same mistakes. We were completely uninformed. We went into uh, Vietnam initially with Kennedy and our advisors, but you'll recall in August of 1964, there was a PT boat attack against an American destroyer, and then there was a reported second attack. And because of that, Lyndon Johnson was authorized through the Tonkin Gulf resolution to begin escalating a war against the North Vietnamese. There was no second attack. Similarly, in Iraq, the second time we went in for weapons of mass destruction, there were no weapons of mass destruction. And you're seeing a pattern. And every time we fail or don't achieve our objectives, it's because we went in for the wrong reasons, we didn't understand the culture, and the result has been predictable. That's the issue. And unfortunately, Uh, Presidents don't seem to learn, and this is not something that's a Republican problem or a Democratic problem. It's an American problem. And we do so because we tend to elect presidents who are extraordinarily inexperienced. They're not ready for the job. 
understanding that job is one of the toughest in the world. And in many cases, they are ignorant of what's really happening, and that ignorance leads to bad judgment and mistakes. And it was as true with John Kennedy as it was with uh, George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton. Uh, the exceptions really were George H.W. Bush, and he wasn't elected for a second term. And Richard Nixon, unfortunately, was ruined by Watergate. And so when you have experienced presidents uh, who actually could have done well, none of them really were able to get a second term or serve for a full second term. And those who have not been quite so able uh, seem to be reelected. It's just the nature of American politics today. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay. Now, Dr. Oman, stay with me. Sure. I've got to run a few commercials. We'll be back after these messages. The WIP time here on Conversation, 638. And we're back here on Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Dr. Harlan Ullman. He's the author of a new book, that new book being Anatomy Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts. And he's an expert on military tactics and issues. My name's Peter Solomon. All right, Dr. Your reaction to something. There's been increasing calls for Congress to insist that they have to approve every military action, not just wars. That the president just can't decide, okay, we're sending some troops here today. What do you think about that? Uh, One of the problems is that, I shouldn't say the problem, the reality is that the president is the commander-in-chief by the Constitution. And one of the issues, especially during the Cold War, when the fact that nuclear war was possible you would not have time for congressional approval, obviously, uh, because of what the Vietnam War what was put in place was the War Powers Act, where if the president was going to use Ameri- American military force, he had 30 days to report back to Congress the, the uses of force, and at that stage, Congress could vote up or down, and the president would have to continue to report back as long as force was being used. Uh, The reality also today is that we're operating under authorization to use military force in 2001 against the Taliban and in al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in 2002 uh, in Iraq. And quite frankly, the Islamic State was not created at that stage, nor was what we're doing in Syria covered by that. So I think that you do need to have an authorization to use military force, and there's got to be more careful oversight with Congress. But the fact is, in Congress, you've got both parties that are so terribly divided that they can't agree with each other, and both have been driven uh, to the more extremes of left and right. <clears throat> and so that even if you have a, an authorization that covers many of these uh, issues, uh, one party is liable to attack the president, regardless of the president, on the grounds that the president does, is exceeding his or her authority. And so this is a tricky issue which is made much more difficult the fact that Congress often does not act rationally, and there are times when the president must use military force, and a check by Congress, or I should say the ability for Congress to prevent that initially, can be detrimental. But it requires trust and confidence on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, and certainly for the last 40 years that trust and confidence has been in ever-shrinking supply. Your thoughts on what seems to be the revolving door of people going in and out of the White House who are responsible for foreign policy and making these military decisions? It's not so much the revolving door, though. We're seeing a great deal of that with the Trump administration. He's on his third national security advisor in just over a year's time, the second secretary of state. This is really unprecedented. But one of the issues here is that Donald Trump 
is the least experienced person we've ever had as president who's had no experience in government whatsoever. And I don't know whether he was prepared, uh, whether he was preparing for victory, but I think the victory came as a surprise, and so his transition was really very, very difficult. And he was unable to fill all the jobs with the right people for any number of reasons. And that's a real issue. Um, and so it's not so much the revolving door, but when you have inexperienced people who appoint people to high office because they were useful in getting the president elected rather than in governing, you have problems. And this has been true of past administrations. The Obama administration suffered from some of it, the Bush administration and the Clinton administration likewise. But the progression of how this is headed is not in a good direction. And as a result, the Trump administration is probably one of the least uh, well served by the whole appointment process because of the inexperience and the suddenness of his election, which I think took a lot of people by surprise in the Republican Party. Even with all those generals running in and out of the White House? Well, you don't really want to have a general put in a political position. And quite frankly, um, Barack Obama had his generals as well. He had General Jim Jones, Marine, who was his national security advisor, Admiral Dennis Blair, who was director of national intelligence, <clears throat> and General Rick Shinseki, who was head of the Veterans Affairs. Uh, the problem is that uh, his choice of generals, and I think possibly because Donald Trump went to the New York Military Academy at high school, that gave him uh, a particular awe of generals. Uh, he felt more comfortable around them, and his choice of General Mike Flynn, I think, was a big mistake. I don't think Flynn was prepared to be National Security Advisor and didn't last very long. Uh, General H.R. McMaster, who just resigned very recently, uh, is, a, is a Ph.D. general who has distinguished himself in combat in two wars, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And General McMaster is a traditional officer who's straight down the middle, and that makes life very, very difficult um, to deal with a president who is so volatile and impulsive. And we have General Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, who in my mind is doing a brilliant job, but he's extremely well prepared to do that job. So I'm not sure that the progression of generals in this administration is any different than it has been in past generations. But the issue is that General John Kelly, who was originally head of the Homeland Security uh, Agency or Department, now Chief of Staff, there are very, very few military officers who've got the political background. They don't understand how the White House operates. And so I think assigning a general to that political job as opposed to running a cabinet position uh, is unfair on the general and tends not to work. All right. If you were appointed the president's military advisor, what would you tell him to do? <laughs> well, first of all, Peter, I'm laughing because I wouldn't be advising him. Uh, and, and second, actually, if, if I were, I would be advising him to follow a couple of his instincts. Uh, the president wants to talk to Russia, and it's very difficult under the political circumstances because one of the few things Congress will agree on is that Russia is a threat. And so, therefore, I would be scheduling a lengthy summit with Putin, not to last for a couple of hours, but probably for three or four or five or six days. Uh, people will not remember, but after Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Winston Churchill, who was British, Britain's prime minister, flew over to the United States and spent two and a half weeks in the White House with President Roosevelt to discuss the strategy for World War II. And so I would initiate a long series of conversations. Second, with North Korea, I would ensure that we have a realistic 
list of possible achievements and also a plan that if the talks fail, what is plan B? Uh, similarly with China, uh, I would be urging the president to lift these tariffs. They're not going to work. They could lead to a trade war, and China can do more damage to us in part because China has nearly a trillion and a half dollars of U.S. treasuries and about the same amount in U.S. equities. And can you imagine if China decided to sell off all its treasuries, what that would do to the financial markets? And finally, in NATO, I would be moving more towards a porcupine defense strategy, which is reliant more on local countries using less expensive military systems. We don't have to rely so much on tanks and expensive aircraft um, because we cannot spend enough money to be able to fill our military requirements. And quite frankly, that Congress has approved a, basically a two-year spending hike for the Defense Department, now expects that the Defense Department is going to be able to fill and fix all the problems and gaps it has. It will not. And so in two years' time, we're going to find ourselves in a lot of trouble because the amount of money that was appropriate it will not be sufficient to keep the force becoming from becoming hollow. That is a force that's not ready and not capable to carry out all of its functions, even though we will have spent $1.5 trillion or so on defense for the last two years. Those are the four areas where I would give the president advice that I think is somewhat different from what he's getting right now. And then we have a president who wants the Defense Department to pay for the wall with Mexico. Which is absurd, and there should be no wall. It's crazy. Uh, this is a campaign promise which is dangerous, not going to work. It's infuriated people to the south, as people probably know, the amount of aliens coming across the border are at records low. Uh, there are ways to deal with it. But unfortunately, the president had two slogans, make America great again, as if America were not great, and build a wall. And his supporters rally to that call, to that promise. And so it becomes a, a campaign promise that can't be done, is expensive, will not work, and is going to be detrimental. But unfortunately, I think it's impossible for the president to change his mind on that particular issue. And so there are some things that I think should be done that will not. Well, the other question, just your opinion, sir. Um, with midterm elections coming up, there's a very good possibility Congress will change hands both in the House of Representatives and the Senate. And things are only going to get worse if that happens, doesn't it? Well, I don't really know how, how, that, how the elections are going to turn out. Right now, the Democrats seem to be on a high. You've got any number of members in the House of Representatives, including Charlie Dent from your part of the world, um, who are standing down. I think they understand where the future is headed, and they don't want to be a minority party. Uh, and so if Congress does change, I think the House, if it becomes Democratic, I think almost certainly it's going to vote for articles of impeachment. And the Senate, unless the Democrats get 67 votes, uh, will remain deadlocked, even if they have a small majority. And so an impeachment will just further cripple the government, whether it's warranted or not. And so in a sense, it almost makes no difference which party is going to be in control uh, after the 2018 elections, there are going to be all sorts of issues. The Mueller report on the president will come out. It appears, if you read the press, that the uh, charges and allegations against Michael Cohen, the president's attorney, uh, could be quite serious and could lead back to the Oval Office and other misgivings. I think that's one of the reasons why the president has become almost frantic in his tweets 
about the Cohen uh, break into Cohen's office and uh, his home to get records. But the sum and substance is no matter who is going to be elected and controlling both houses of Congress, we are in for a really rocky ride, and I don't see the situation improving. I think the question is how much will the situation worsen rather than the other way around. Because it seems to me articles of impeachment, if they're voted, will only further embolden our enemies. No, I don't really think so. We talk about enemies. We should drop that word. I don't think we have enemies, quite frankly. And labeling Russia and China as a principal adversaries and China as a, as a predatory economic power is not very helpful. I think we have countries whose interests are different from ours. That applies also in the alliance. Um, and I think we really don't need to demonize China or Russia or anybody else or Iran. I think we're making a huge mistake in that regard uh, because it forces us to rely more on, on military responses and increasing defense spending, which, quite frankly, I don't think we need to do because it's unnecessary and it's also unaffordable. And so I don't like using the term enemies. Uh, we can deal if we have a more rational set of policies, but unfortunately, even the instincts of the president, when they are correct, are going to be hugely criticized by certainly the Democrats and by members of his own party, which induces further gridlock and paralysis, making any kind of successful negotiations and outcomes more elusive. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Harlan Ullman, senior advisor, was senior advisor in the senior advisory group to the Supreme Allied Command in Europe from 2004 to 2016, senior advisor to the Washington, D.C., Atlantic Council, and author his new book, Anatomy of Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts. Thank you, Dr. Oman. Peter, nice being with you. It's my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And it's been another edition of Conversation. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.